But we would like to begin this morning session with the devotional prayers that are very part of the tradition, which I embrace. In this retreat, as in most retreats that I lead, there's relatively little in the way of ritual. Not that I have anything against it, but I do tend to put it a bit on the side. But there are two elements of ritual that I pretty much always implement when I'm teaching. And one is, and really taken primarily from the Zen tradition, which I have no training whatsoever, but the gasho, the bowing this way, which is, and one thing I really like about it is the, the complete symmetry of it. And that is here in this, in this, uh, on this occasion, at this time, I'm here in the role of a teacher. Other times I'm in the role of a student, like when I'm listening to, to, to Eva, I'm, I'm not there as her teacher, I'm there as her Dharma brother, Dharma, and I'm listening to her to learn. Um, but the, the beauty of this symmetry, that what we're bowing to is not, oh, this person's knowledgeable, or this person's a good teacher, or this is a very good student. What we're really bowing to is the Buddha nature in each one, in which is complete, complete symmetry here. There is no higher and lower when it comes to Buddha nature anywhere. And so it's always appropriate. And it's not just for humans, not just for humans. So I really cherish that, and it, it's mean, very meaningful to me that there is, here, I am bound to honor you. You are the reality of your own Buddha nature. And then today I made a point of it, I do it almost all the time, but when I'm sitting, this, in case you didn't know, this is not a chair, this is a Dharma throne. <laughs> it looks like a chair, in fact, I'm designating it. Poof, you're a Dharma throne. And when a Dharma teacher sits on a Dharma throne, there is enormous responsibility in that, which I take tremendous gravitas. Um, I must be teaching authentically, otherwise stop. I must be teaching with a sound and benevolent motivation, otherwise stop. Uh, and you simply offer your best, and that's it. You just offer your best. Afterwards, I really don't think about what did they, did they like it, did they not like it, did, 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 did I get feedback forms? I, I don't do that. I just offer my best. And this right here, from the Dhamma, this is a classic, this Tibetan tradition. The Dhamma teacher sits down, the Lama, the Rinpoche, the ordinary guy like me, teacher, snaps the fingers, and it's just this delicious reminder that I'll be dead soon. Mortality. And I really, I say that very contentedly. But that's what I'm facing. As one, one friend of mine said, I'm too old to die young. <laughs> I could live another three minutes or another 30 years, but, but the point here is that in the face of my own mortality, there's, and I've, I've had a very close brush with the Lord of Death, so to speak, when I was 24 years old, no, 23 years old, almost died, really, really close. So I got really up close and personal with death, and when I was saved by a Tibetan doctor, a very clear, lasting impression was he did not save my life. <coughs> he postponed my death. You save someone and then they're saved. He didn't save me. He just pushed my death back, for which I'm very grateful. And they've been good years. But in the face of death, then whatever people think about you or don't think about you, it just doesn't matter. What does matter is you offer your very best. So my motto for life is, offer your best and die. <laughs> so that's our ritual, in case you're wondering. This is simply bowing to, showing reverence to, acknowledging uh, the Buddha nature in each one. And I want to, so you can bow if you like. Uh, but of course, I don't have any more than a tadpole or a flea. But it's good enough.
So on this note, I think um, Eva is the designated driver. <laughs> <laughs> I saw her no alcohol this morning at all. She was very, very good. <laughs> She's the designated driver for our morning devotions, which I will join in with you. Guru 
So, in terms of the Dharma that Eva and I are sharing with you over these two days, <coughs> I feel a very deep sense of contentment that even though this is a very tiny sliver of the pie, the Buddhist pie is a very big pie, uh, and these are very tiny slivers, there's so much more than what we can possibly share in two days. But in terms of a taster, I think this is a really good taste that is cultivating attention, cultivating our ability to tend to, watch over, look after, and care for. And starting with ourselves, and how much of the oxygen mass in your own face, on the one hand, just to bring about peace of mind in a world that is in so many, in so many ways not peaceful at all. To heal one's own mind in a way, in a world in which so many minds, people's minds are not healed at all. And manifesting without control, without understanding, without wisdom, manifesting the mental afflictions and not even knowing, in English, we don't even have a word for mental affliction. You've noticed that. That's why we had to make up mental affliction. Who, who uses the word mental affliction apart from Buddhists? How could we not have the term klesha in English if this is, in fact, the root of all suffering? How could we not have a word? You know, but then we have to make up one. Uh, but other people just call it having human nature, having a big ego, getting angry pretty often, and me first, getting in there. That's just being a good macho survivalist not even have a notion that this is the root of suffering. And so starting there is a good start. Heal thyself, heal thyself. Healer, heal thyself. And that's one of the phrases here. And then in the afternoon, but there's more that we can do more than simply find calm and inner peace. We can do more. Because the world is calling out. There's a, a sermon or a discourse by the Buddha called the fire sermon or the fire, the fire talk. It's not fireside chat like FDR. It's the world. It's the world is a flame with the fires of mental afflictions. And this is in rural India 2,600 years ago. Not a bad place to be, frankly. You know. And yet the world is a flame. From the perspective of an enlightened one, the world is a flame with mental afflictions burning out of control. And the only realistic response is compassion. It's the only one. But we start, we complement the morning teachings with the after teachings on, afternoon teachings on loving kindness, embedded in this incredibly rich matrix of the four immeasurables. And Eva just, just, just touched the crust so far, he had a short time. But to show the relationship among these four, loving kindness, compassion, empathetic, joy, and equanimity, and knowing you can shift the order and you come up with another reason for ordering them in another way. There's not just one right way. Uh, but now I want to bring a little bridge, and we go right into the practice quickly. About two points to make before we go into the first session. And that is, it's classically said, I think most explicitly, I've seen it in the Theravada tradition, that there are two ways of cultivating loving kindness, and that goes for the other of the three, four immeasurables. And one is by meditatively cultivating, sitting down, folding your hands, and cultivating loving kindness. And oh, just by the way, if you go very deeply into the meditative cultivation of loving kindness, it can take you all the way to the achievement of shamatha. It's one of the 40. It's one of the 40 methods the Buddha taught. And for people who tend to be very hot-tempered, very flaring, very fiery, that may be the most effective way to just immerse yourself in a pool of loving kindness and take it all the way to shamatha. It's an absolutely legitimate way to do it. But the bridge between the two. So one way is meditatively cultivating them, and you can go all the way to shamatha, and oh my goodness, then you'd be basically, a, a, regardless of worldview, be a Christian, be a humanist. I like that word. I like that word, humanist. 
I don't really resonate, one might say, I don't really, I don't feel at home in any of the religions I've been exposed to, it's just not my, my, my home. But I want to be virtuous, I want to plumb the depths of what it is to be a conscious human being in this, in this universe. I want to live a meaningful life, I want to live a benevolent life, I want to live a compassionate life. And I just don't connect with any religions out there. I say, hallelujah, praise the Lord. <laughs> Go for it. Achieve enlightenment as a humanist, why not? You know, you don't have to sign on to some Bill of Rights or some catechism, Buddhist, Hindu, or anything else. And so one way of, is of developing the four immeasurables, starting with loving kindness, is cultivating them on the cushion. But another way, according to the classic Theravada teachings, is live a very, in a very loving way. Engage with others in a very loving and kind way, and that will cultivate, in a way, from the outside in. Just keep on doing it. Just keep on being gracious and kind and attentive and warm and affectionate. Just keep on doing it and seeing how that influences your life. And there's some old science behind this, old as in going back to William James. This is like, God, this is the first decade or two of modern psychology. But they noted back then, and I'll do, I'll do the little cartoon here. If you make yourself adopt a facial expression of anger, You can see it affects your mind. <laughs> it, it does. It, it goes from the outside in. I wasn't thinking of any unhappy thought, but after all, yeah, I get kind of pissed off here. <laughs> <laughs> so they knew that 100, 150, 120 years ago. And then, of course, then the, the other side is true also. And, and, well, and Paul Ekman made it, this same, same comment, a world expert on facial expression. That uh, I would imagine because there's a facial expression for fear and anxiety. I'm starting to feel really, really uneasy here. <laughs> you know? Um, but then what about, what about that? It, and I am doing this voluntarily, but it's, it's not taking much effort. It's not taking much effort at all. And if you just start displaying the facial expression of kindness, of warmth, of happiness. And then you start speaking in a loving and warm way. And then when it's appropriate, maybe give a gentle hug or some other act of kindness, a gentle caress, touching the shoulder, like that. It will actually see that. So it goes, there's symmetry there. In, in karma, it's always symmetry. But it's true on the outside, it can be true on the upside. And so this leads to then our, the practice, I just have one more point before we begin. And that is the practice of mindfulness of breathing. The tiny sliver of the great pie that is a marvelous sliver. It can itself be an expression of loving kindness for yourself explicitly and an expression of loving kindness for others implicitly. That I want to do something. Some people say, what do they say? What's that word, something food? When you've had a really bad day, and comfort food. I've had a really rotten day. I'm going to have an ice cream sundae. <laughs> I'm going to do something really nice for me. Then I feel better. So comfort food, right? And so we want to feel greater peace of mind, I think, generally. Less anxiety, not feel so irritable, ill at ease, edgy, unhappy, depressed. We'd like to feel a greater sense of meaning and joy and satisfaction and fulfillment. And why not? And in fact, I think it's a very profound statement. I keep going on and on. I 
said it would be short. That's a yellow, yellow light to look up. But isn't it profound? And I mean, I've spoken with biologists. Why do we have feelings at all? We don't need them. We really don't need them at all. We don't need joy. We don't need sorrow. If the whole point of our existence here is survive and procreate, oh, give, give me a break. Ask me, get any good software designer. They can make a robot that will be programmed to do whatever's needed to survive and then pop out little baby robots. <laughs> you know, it's not that hard. You don't need feelings. You just need to be programmed. Danger, danger, back up. You just wanted, heed it, heal your wound. Now you can pro now you can propagate again. Good for you. <laughs> we just don't need feelings. They're just not necessary at all. What's the use of them? And that's one more case where, as much as I admire, scientifically, this brilliant theory created by Al Wallace and, what was his name? Oh, yeah, Alfred Russell. <laughs> Al Wallace. I, I just like Al Wallace myself. And Darwin, you know, the other guy. I'm, I'm playing around here, but it's a brilliant theory. And both of them did, did the due diligence. Both of them did a tremendous amount of research, independently and simultaneously. It's quite, quite an amazing story. But leaving that aside, it's just one more area where it has tremendous explanatory power and gives no explanatory power why we're conscious at all. Because you, you can have a robot that survives and grows right. It doesn't have to be conscious at all. They've never figured out why consciousness has actually happened. Because the robot with no consciousness can be programmed for survival and procreation. Duh. And why conscious and why have feelings? Because we're not only conscious, we care. And the Dalai Lama was like, I can't stop, I'm sorry. <laughs> but the Dalai Lama was once asked, what do you think is the fundamental drive in human existence? What is the deepest drive? Is it libido? Is it death instinct? Is it survival? What is it? And he's, as he, I've translated for him many, many times, and as usual, he paused. He did not give a snap answer. And he gave an answer that I've never heard anybody else say, and I've never read it anywhere in anybody's text. He paused, he thought about it, and I was translating for him, so I know exactly what he said in Tibetan. And I know the best translation, and I gave it then. What's the fundamental drive? We care. We care. And there's nothing you can do about it. There's no switch you can, you, know, you can go brain dead, but then you're basically not there anymore. But apart, as long as you're conscious, you have no choice. The Buddhists have no choice. Jesus had no choice. The great saints have no choice. The great Mahasiddhas and Mahatmas and so forth, they have no choice. We must care. We do care. It is in the, in absolutely indelibly in our nature as sentient beings, not only human beings. Animals care. Those billion animals that died in the five months of fires in Australia, they didn't want to die. They wanted to escape. They just weren't fast enough. But they desperately wanted to escape, just like the human beings. But we have cars, so we do a better job of it. The birds probably did okay. But now where are they going to live afterwards? And so that principle of caring is fundamental. It's at our core. Whether we engage in diabolical ways of life, Hitler, I'm sure, cared about a lot of things. He's our icon, right? And the great saints, we, we, we all care. And so let our mindfulness breathing practice be an expression of caring for ourselves. I'll sit in the mask on your own face. Let this be an expression of loving kindness for yourself. May I be truly well and happy, may I find the causes of hedonic and eudaimonic well-being. And for that sake, I will now mindfully breathe in and breathe out to soothe and calm and cultivate my minds for which I will be the first recipient.
first beneficiary. And I rise from my cushion and I come out and engage perhaps with my family or friends, people in the workplace. I'll be then offering someone else other than the person that would have come to the workplace had I not meditated. And just come from a field of rumination and I mean mine and my problems and what can you do for me. And I'll come into the workplace, I'll engage with the world. With a quality of stillness, my awareness in the midst of movements of the world. A mind that is at peace while engaging with others who on occasion, dominated by mental afflictions and, and display them, but finding myself unperturbed. Not uncaring, not aloof, not indifferent, but not infected. That I don't need to be infected by the greed and selfishness of others, stupidity or hatred of others. I don't want to close my eyes. I don't want to pretend it's not there. The path to awakening is not ignorance, it's knowing. And so explicitly, we engage in the practice of mindfulness breathing as an act of loving kindness for ourselves. Treat yourself with loving kindness, you'll find loving kindness starts to emerge more and more deeply. But then knowing that even on the cushion, we're still interconnected, but as soon as we step out and I come down and have breakfast with Ame, with Mark, with Eva, Already, somebody's coming down the stairs, and this person who's really whose mind is afflicted and grumpy and irritable and so forth, or somebody who's not. But as soon as I engage with anybody, then wouldn't you like to offer your best rather than your worst? Wouldn't that be a nice way to greet the world? And so, that was one point, that this is a cultivation of loving kindness for ourselves. Directly and indirectly, whoever we may encounter, one more trigger, I just have so many things coming to mind, but years ago when I was really like 23 years old, and I'd already become a monk and I was fluent in Tibetan, and I just plunged into the deep end of the pool, receiving formal heavy-duty monastic training in a monastery where all, everybody else was Tibetan. I was the only, the only gringo. And this phrase, all sentient beings, comes up all the time for the sake of all sentient beings, all sentient beings. And in the Buddhist worldview, it's no, le it's no smaller than that of modern cosmology with a hundred billion galaxies, each with on the order of a hundred million to a trillion stars, and probably there's about one planet per star, generically speaking. So the modern scientific worldview is vast in space and time, but is no more vast than that of, of Buddhism. Buddhism has never been, never been, how do you say, having the Earth center universe. It never came up. And it never came up that human beings are the, you know, it's all for sentient beings. It never came up. It's just not an issue. And so I asked the, the abbot of one of our monasteries, the wonderful monk, so compassionate, and extremely skillful. He was handpicked by the Dalai Lama to lead us in this monastery, which the Dalai Lama created. And I asked him, I've heard all sentient beings, all sentient, I've heard it so many times. But when I think all sentient beings, kind of nothing comes up. And not my neighbor, not my, not my student, not my teacher, because they're not all sentient beings. You're not all sentient beings. Americans are not sentient beings. People on planet Earth are not sentient beings. So what's supposed to come up? It's so big, it's almost nothing. And he said, all sentient beings, whoever you encounter, whoever you encounter, in person, but by way of the internet, or you remember them, they come to mind, you're encountering them. I can think of my mother, she's passed away, but I can encounter her right now. She's, she didn't vanish from the universe. She's still there in different form. My father's still alive. He can come up, and so forth and so on. But whomever you encounter, 
if you attend to them all as, as evil, well, I'm certainly, I'll certainly elaborate this afternoon with an open heart, with impartiality, attending to the Buddha nature of each one, while not overlooking defects, virtues, and so forth, and attending to them. If we can have the heart, and this is so universal, it's Hindu, it's Christian, it's, it's Jewish, it's Buddhist, unconditional, unconditional. You don't have to earn my love. You don't have to earn my compassion. You don't have to earn my empathy, and you don't have to do anything to earn my impartiality. Uh, that's all sentient beings. And it's like a poll when pollsters, like you know, Gallup poll and so forth, when they want to know what Republicans think, or Democrats, or women, or men, or and so forth, they don't interview every single one. They never, you know, they cost too much. So they want to know what Americans think with something like, what, 350 million of us by now? And they interview 3,500. Right? But they're professional posters because they know this person represents 100,000 people, and this person and person, there's a whole bunch of people rather like this person. And time and again, the polls are really quite accurate. But they're taking a tiny, tiny fraction which is represented. That's why it's not just going door to door. Right? When you engage with this person and that person, you engage a person who's a bit grumpy, there are 100 million people behind them. <laughs> and a very kind person, 100 million there. And a person who's feeling kind of bored, 100 million there. In other words, you're hitting all sentient beings by meeting 10 or 15. You know? That really got home to me. I've never forgotten it. And so, final point. <laughs> <laughs> We're about to go into the, you remember a classic Coke? That's, it used to be just Coca-Cola, now it's called classic Coke, you remember? The, the original one. There's also classic mindfulness of breathing. It's kind of the Coca-Cola uh, mindfulness of breathing. And it's the Theravada approach. The Theravadans kind of own this one. Zen practitioners, they practice mindfulness of breathing, but not to achieve shamatha, not really. And the Tibetans do it, yeah, but 21 breaths, we're done. But the Theravadans, I mean, they've, they've, they just love this one. They, they're, in full break. they're in full union, you know. <laughs> Full union with mindfulness breathing, it's their baby. It's their baby. They teach it like no one else. They're really brilliant. And it's Buddhaghosa. Buddhaghosa drew a thousand years of wisdom. He lived a thousand years after the Buddha. And he, he was very brilliant, but he was not brilliant in terms of being innovative. He is brilliant in having this encyclopedic knowledge of the Buddha's own teachings and then a thousand years of experience, primarily in the Theravada tradition. An anecdote, an anecdote, must be hundreds in his great tome. Uh, and then this monk approached his teacher and he said this and the teacher said that. And just so many anecdotes, sometimes from the life of the Buddha, but often yogis after him. And he synthesized this all into a really a synthetic, comprehensive, integrated, something of the Thomas Aquinas of Theravada, making now here's the whole picture. And, and what he taught as mindfulness of breathing is the technique, attend here to the sensations of the breath at the nostrils just above the upper lip or at the apertures of the nostrils, attend to them there, and that's going to be our method. It's an interpretation because the Buddha never said that. But the Buddha, as we'll see, he was extremely concise. The, the little bullet, bullet comments, four phases, and that's it. But this is the interpretation, and it's worked so well. It was such a good interpretation that people are still following his lead 2,000 years later, right? Uh, it's really brilliant. No, 1,500 years, 1,500 years later. And so that's the method we'll go into right now. 
The other ones are magnificent. Asanga's method, it's classic for the Mahayana tradition, but there are other interpretations. And this one here, that's Burmese tradition. Maybe not very old, but it's good. But this one's the classic. Okay, right here, the apages of the nostrils. And I have, and then we come, this is my final point, and we'll go in. Transmission. <laughs> transmission. And that is, I have received transmission on this method, and I just, I was, it was 1980, I've been training really intensively, doing nothing else for 10 years. My visa ran out in India. Zonin has invited me back to meditate under his guidance. I did. My visa ran out. The Indian government said, get out. So I headed south to Sri Lanka, meditated, had some really strong experiences come up, needed some, some advice. And I'm wearing Theravada robes. I was fully ordained, so you can wear any robes you like. And so I was wearing Theravada robes. And I was literally like a stray dog wandering around Sri Lanka. I didn't know anybody there. I was nobody. I mean, really just nobody. I mean, a Tibetan monk wearing Theravada robes, whatever. Uh, and I was just wandering around looking for a teacher who would actually give me guidance. And I went to a Christian monastery up in the, up in the highlands where they grow a lot of tea. It was very nice, but they couldn't guide me in Chamata. And I just traveled, and then somebody I bumped into. I was just like this stray puppy, like, anybody want to feed me? <laughs> really, just like that. I was really a nobody, a stray dog, wandering around Sri Lanka looking for somebody who would guide me. And um, couldn't get back to India. And then somebody said, do you know about Balangoda Amnanda Maitreya? And I said, no, who's he? He's a very good teacher. He might, he might take you in. He lives in this little tiny village, tiny, tiny village, Udumula, Udumula. You might check him out. I said, okay, whatever. <laughs> and then I made my way there and came to this dinky little temple with just maybe six, seven, eight kutis, or little rooms around it. And there was this old monk and it turned out he was the re most renowned Buddhist teacher and master in all of Sri Lanka. Balangoda Ananamatreya. You Google him, he will loom large. He was spectacular. He was renowned. He was the eminent Buddhist teacher of all of Sri Lanka. But he retired. Otherwise, I would have been among five or 10,000 people coming to his teachings. But he retired, returned to his village temple in the little village where he was born, and he was retired. He lived for about another 20 years. And so I came there, the stray, stray dog, and said I, something like, I hear your Anana Maitreya. Could you teach me? I said, sure, here's an empty cap, move in. And he took me under his wing. So that's my transmission from him. He's brilliant. He's brilliant. And gentle and wise. And his name, I have to tell you this, his name was Anana Maitreya. He's about 80 years old, retired. He lived almost, almost 100. And uh, when he was much younger, back, back like 40 years earlier, he'd been a really dedicated practitioner, practicing Vipassana. And his teacher told him, if you practice a little bit more, you're going to become an Arya. You'll realize Nirvana. And then, classic teachings, you will achieve Nirvana within nine lifetimes. You can just sit there and hang out, and you'll still achieve at least within nine lifetimes, maybe this lifetime. But there's no, ch you have entered the stream, and so you will flow to the great ocean of Nirvana, and the longest you'll hang out here in samsara is nine more lifetimes. And then, in the Theravada view, you achieve Nirvana, you live for a little while, you're dead, and then you're gone. You're never coming back. Never coming back. And then he paused, 
to achieve Arhatship that soon. Why? Because I'm waiting for Buddha Maitreya. And I want to be his Ananda. I want to be his personal attendant. And I don't want to check out too soon because he's not coming for a long time. So I'm going to throttle back on my Vipassana here to make sure I don't slip into the stream. And I can still hang out here and accrue more merit, more merit, more merit. Because when Buddha comes, Maitreya, I want to serve him. He was my teacher. And he took him a straight dog. So five years earlier, no, no, nine years earlier, the Dalai Lama took me in as a wandering homeless person, begging for some food. He said, we take you in. And then nine years later, I was a straight dog. So you see, I've, I've evolved. <laughs> I'm a wandering homeless person to a straight dog. But I've always come under the kindness of others, and that's the transmission you receive. Transmission means not <coughs> when you're transmitting, receiving a transmission, he received it, he received it going back to the Buddha. No question about that. And he guided me. He, didn't, he guided me for oh, two and a half, three months. I lived with him. Took me under his wing. But transmission doesn't mean that you simply parrot the words of your teacher like a tape recorder. You listen to the words. You understand the words. You practice. You gain experience. You may even gain some realization. And then you pass on. But the way you teach will have just evolved one generation. It won't be the same, because the people you're teaching are not exactly in the same historical era as the, the students of your teacher. And so each time, there will be some change. But you maintain the core. You maintain the essence, the authenticity of it. But you may do use different analogies. You may use different examples and so forth. You may nuance it here and there. And I'm one of many teachers of Eva, for example. She has a number of splendid teachers, Eastern and Western, Lamas and Western instructors. I'm one of many. So I was listening to her teach yesterday. So it's all familiar. It was all completely compatible with the transition I received. But I don't teach that way. Hallelujah. Otherwise, who wants just a clone of yourself? That'd be boring. No way. She's not a clone of anybody. And so then she'll have her own students. She already does. And I know there are other teachers here as well. And your teachers won't teach, your students won't teach them exactly the same way you teach either. Because there'll be another generation, could be another gender, another culture. I've taught Mongolians and people from all over the world. And so transmission means it continues to evolve like a species that evolves and adapts according to the change of the times, the environment, and so forth and so on. But it maintains the authenticity. You're not just making up something all afresh and departing from the tremendous momentum and the current of blessings wisdom for which you get to receive with reverence. So that's transmission. And I witnessed this after studying seriously for 20 years, let's see, 1970, 1990, yeah, 20 years. Fluent in Tibetan, read fluently, translated a number of books already. I knew my way around the block. But my first love, the first book I ever picked up on, on Buddhism was Dzogchen, The Great Perfection. And His Holiness, I would say, made sure I didn't get near it for another 20 years. Because <laughs> he wanted to make sure I had the foundation. And then after 19 years, then he gave Dzogchen transmission in San Jose, and I was living in Sanford. So then I came, and then he had other things to do. But from my perspective, he emanated himself as Gyatrimuche, who then took me under his wing for the next 10 years and to the present day, and gave me a bounty of Dzogchen teachings. Uh, now, where did that come from? Can you tell me where it just came from? Transmission. 
transmission. Oh, necessity of it as opposed to reading? Oh, yes, thank you, yeah. So there I was at Stanford in the first year or so, and Betsy Knapper, who was the previous wife of Jeffrey Hopkins, a very good scholar in her own right and a practitioner, she was a visiting scholar at Stanford. And she's fluent in Tibetan, totally, and so, and she was a visiting scholar, so I said, Betsy, you want to sit down and, and read some Dzogchen text together? She said, yeah, let's do it. I could read the words. They just didn't come in. I'd never received, this was before I received the first transmission. They didn't come in. I, wor I understood word by word by word, and I came away, and my mouth was still dry. Just nothing came through. And, but I am fluent, after all. But nothing came through. I, I know the words, and I, I, I don't get it. It was strange. 20 years, I was, I've been fluent for 17 years, you know? And Betsy, of course. And then His Holiness gave transmission. And then Gyatranabhaji gave transmission about transmission, transmission. And then it all comes alive. And if you receive transmission, and then you go back to the text in which you receive transmission, it speaks to you afresh each time. You're now in a dialogical relationship with the text rather than having a dead letter and trying to look at it and pull something out, like pull, pulling flesh off of a corpse. Just the opposite of that. You're engaging with something as living, and it speaks to you. And Christians know this. They don't read the, the passage of Corinthians once and say, I got it, and then not look at it again. I mean, devout Christians, when they're reading the Bible constantly, that's a meditation every single time, because the Bible is, sa is saying something new each time, and that's true for Jews and Hindus and Taoists and so forth. When it's sacred literature and you have transmission, then it keeps on guiding you. Atisha, when he was just about to pass away, and his disciples were mourning him, he was so beloved, so noble, kind and virtuous, and he was a siddha, he was the, the perfect lama, as far as I can tell, Atisha. And he's about to pass away, and his, his disciples were just distraught. How can we live without you? How can we live without you? And he said, if you know the Dharma, you know me. And the Dharma is in your hands, and now my body's leaving, but I'm still here. Take refuge in the Dharma, you're taking refuge in me. Go to the text, you're going to me. I'm still here, just not my body. But your refuge is still here. This old man's about to die. That's transmission. Okay, now you're ready to practice. That was after my very short introduction. <laughs>
Classically, we begin by taking refuge. As Eva said yesterday, we're all taking refuge, something to that effect. But entrust yourself. That which you most deeply revere is your deepest sanctuary, your place of rest and safety. And arouse the most meaningful motivation you can. If it can be bodhicitta, let it be bodhicitta. If it is simply loving kindness for yourself and all those who are connected with you, let it be that. Heard the chimes, hearing the chimes. Let yourself at ease, relaxed, comfortable. And let your awareness descend out of this very busy mind that we so closely associated with the head. Descend down into the quiet realm, the silent realm, the somatic field of all manner of tactile sensations. From ground up. It is a domain of experience in which there are no thoughts or concepts, in which there are no mental afflictions. your conceptual mind into a simple, <coughs> mindful presence. And mindfully be present throughout your whole body, letting your body at ease, resting it in stillness, and in a posture of vigilance. We take on this subtle challenge of allowing the breath to flow unimpededly, effortlessly, egolessly, which is a challenge because when we attend closely to something that we can alter or control, we tend to alter or control it, to make it suit our own desire. But here I invite you to egolessly attend to the rhythm of the respiration, attending closely. When the in-breath is long, noting that it is long. When the out-breath is long, noting that it is long. On those occasions when the in-breath is short, noting that it is short. When the out-breath is short, noting it is short. But without trying to make it this way or that way without controlling or deliberately influencing the flow of the respiration in any way, attend closely, but release all impetus to control, to regulate, to alter. Let the body breathe. It does it better than you will. 
relaxing deeply with every exhalation. Softening the muscles throughout the body, releasing the breath all the way through, and gently, like sending your children off to school, release, send off the thoughts, memories, images that may come to mind. Release them into the space of the mind. Send them on their way. With every exhalation, return to silence. And then the subtlest challenge to relax so deeply, existentially, that you're able to release all hopes and fears just for this short time. Release all desires and aversions and release all identification with the activities of the mind. Go into free fall, into simple awareness. the simplicity of simply being aware. Without putting your mind to work or doing this or that. With a sense of joyful surrender, release everything and rest in what remains. And that is awareness. Awareness infused with caring. And as you release all conceptual grasping, the clinging, the identification with, what remains is awareness, an awareness that is still. Awareness that is still is also bright and clear. Rest your awareness in its natural state, relaxed, still, and clear.
So it's this quality of the body-mind we bring to the main practice. Mindfulness of breathing is classically taught in the Theravada tradition. And so here are the pith instructions, the transmission. Direct the flow of your mental awareness. the tactile sensations of the passage of the air itself, the breath itself, as it passes over your upper lip, passes through the apertures of the nostrils, wherever you find the sensations of the breath are the most distinct and clear. Focus right there on the clearest target. Continuing to let the breath flow effortlessly, unimpededly, as if you were deep asleep. enormous importance to save you unnecessary grief is the point of focusing only your mental awareness on these tactile sensations. But do not focus your eyes, your visual gaze. Your eyes may be closed or softly open as you wish, but let your eyes be soft and unfocused, disengaged from the directionality of your mental awareness. If you should direct your eyes, your gaze, it's bound to give rise to tension in your forehead, which can give rise to headaches, be very problematic. So please don't do that. The eyes soft and focused. All the muscles around the eyes soft and relaxed. Spaciousness between the eyebrows, openness of the forehead. Let your face be as relaxed as that of a sleeping baby. your attention, flow of mental awareness, like a laser, focus single-pointedly on the sensations that the breath flows in, and the breath flows out. See that your spine is straight, your belly is loose, so that when you breathe in, the sensations of the respiration flow right down to the belly, even the lower belly, which expands as you inhale, compresses as you exhale. And this is once again a case of cultivating balance as you mind calms, your body will leave less air, your breathing will become more shallow, the sensations of the, pass of the passage of the breath in and out will become subtler and subtler and subtler. 
require you, if you are to continue to be mindfully engaged with the sensations of the breath, your awareness must correspondingly become subtler and subtler vividness must be enhanced. Otherwise, you'll just lose track and become spaced out or distracted. So the balance here in this practice in particular is to enhance gently, breath by breath, enhance the clarity, vividness, acuity of your attention without diminishing the underlying sense of calm, of composure, stability. That's the balance. Greater clarity without sacrificing stability. May, if you find it helpful, introduce the oscillation. With each in-breath arousing and focusing, thereby warding off the attentional imbalance of laxity, of dullness. With every out-breath relaxing deeply in body and mind, while sustaining the flow of mindfulness with the sensations of the breath, relax thereby ward off the other imbalance of mind-wandering, excitation, agitation. You're tuning your attention with every cycle of the respiration, tuning it finer and finer. See that your practice is complete, you'll not only be cultivating mindfulness and refining mindfulness, you'll also cultivate and refine your faculty of introspection. You'll learn to 
through practice. How to more and more precisely monitor the flow of mindfulness, recognizing quickly even the subtle deviations of mindfulness, falling to expectation, falling to laxity. Noting them quickly, and as soon as you note, attention is straight into excitation, you will relax and release and return. Restore your balance. And when on occasion your attention tips over to the other side, into laxity, dullness, boredom, you'll swiftly apply the antidote, refresh, serviceable. And then the final note following Buddha and many other great teachers for many hundreds of years, you may very well find it helpful to gently subdue turbulence of the conceptual mind, gently as the hoarse whisperer, subdue the excitation, the mind wandering, the rumination, you may very well find it helpful to count the breaths, at least for a while or on occasion. And there are different methods, no one method is right, but here's one for you to experiment with. Having exhaled all the way through, Allow the breath to flow in. Maybe it will be shallow, maybe it will be deep. But you simply let it flow through until it comes to the very end of inhalation. And right there, you punctuate your mindfulness of the respiration with a brief staccato count of one, counting mentally. And then you release as the breath flows. thoughts, riding the wave of the exhalation. The next breath flows in, you ride the wave of the inflow to the very end, and it comes to the end, and you count two. And in between counts, you maintain the flow, attending to the whole body of the breath whole course of exhalation or a whole course of inhalation, a continuous flow of mindfulness of the continuous flow of the sensations of the breath. One count at the end of each inhalation. Between counts, silence. And count just one to ten. One to ten. Experiment. How helpful is this? See for yourself.
back to the beginning and count again. Frustration is useless. Judgment, self-deprecation, completely useless. Just practice as well as you can. And be content with that. And let's continue in silence. I believe I noticed some of you going into the supine position, or shavasana, which I've mentioned before, you're welcome to do at any time. But there's not enough floor space for, I don't know, 100 people here. But when you are at home, and this retreat is over, I'd really encourage you, whether you're really drawn to it or you're not drawn to it at all, I'd really encourage you to learn how to meditate in the supine position. The Buddha taught it, and some of the greatest arhats and greatest teachers, especially in the Theravada teacher, Theravada tradition, teach it. My own primary Dzogchen master, Gyatri Rinpoche, made a big, strong point of this. Alan, when you practice, don't 
forget to meditate while you're lying down. Uh, it's really good advice. And I said, oh, but I try it, but then I get drowsy. And my answer is, get over it. <laughs> get over it. You don't have to be drowsy just by lying down. Anyone, you need to walk if you're standing up. You can't you know, you can just stand up and not walk. And to learn how to develop the skill. And I would suggest you do it very formally. Don't just lie down and say, okay, I'm, I'm practicing. Formally adopt. As I, I, after I was with Ananda Maitreya in Sri Lanka, then I got a visa to come back to India, and I wanted to learn more how to take care of my body. So I, I went to, um, oh, to Iyengar's ashram. I went from the best to the best, at least for the, the Iyengar style. Iyengar is number one in the world. And so I, went, I came under his wing for two and, a half, two and a half months and practiced five hours a day. And boy, when he taught Shavasana, he could do every asana. There wasn't any he couldn't do. And when he taught Shavasana, he taught that with all the precision of any other asana. You're not just nap time. He taught it down to the details, 30 degrees out, palms up. He taught what to do with your feet and so forth. And he said, until you can, until you can master Shavasana, you're not ready to meditate. In other words, it's not just a physical posture. It's a meditation, meditative posture. And you're lying in the Shavasana, and then you are maintaining that ongoing flow of micro-presence in that asana. It's brilliant. It's really brilliant. And in Dzogchen, leaping from the Hindu tradition, Theravada tradition, then leaping off to Dzogchen, one of the most classic fifth instructions is let your body rest like a corpse in a charnel ground. Let your speech be like a lute on which the strings are cut. Let your mind be still like space. This is the most powerful way to realize Buddha nature. I can do that. That is, I can pretend to be a corpse. And I can stop talking. And yeah, kind of release the mind. I, it's quite refreshing, actually. So the older I get, the more I like that. Because <laughs> it's a really good preparation for death. I can do that when I'm dying. I really hope so. I have some confidence it will be so. Not if I'm in intense pain. That would be difficult. So that's why I sold my motorcycle years ago. <laughs> that's a good way to die with intense pain. I decided I'd really like to kind of lower the odds of that. Um, but to learn how to do this, I would really encourage everyone to master it if you can. Because you'll have sick days. The chances are you'll have sick days when you just don't feel up to sitting cross-legged. But does that mean you can't meditate? Oh, I can't meditate. I can't sit cross-legged. Give me a break. You know? And one of these days you're going to be really tired. And another day you're going to be injured. And another day you're going to die. And probably not in the full lotus. <laughs> and so if you only meditate when you're cross-legged, you have now just cut off major major, how do you say, parts of your life that, well, I can't practice because I can't be in the posture. So learn how to practice sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. And you'll probably die lying down. And that's the most important time to meditate in your whole life. They're making a gracious farewell to this life and welcoming what's coming. And I will tell, I will tell you with tremendous certainty, something's coming. <laughs> it's not the end. The materialists so wish that were true. I'm afraid they have a huge disappointment. <laughs> They're going to be so pissed. <laughs> like, crap, I didn't think this was going to happen. Why didn't somebody tell me? <laughs> Sorry, we did, but you weren't listening. That's okay. <laughs> but 
if you're now out in this unexplored realm and you don't have a clue what's coming next, that's tough. And so, pith instructions from the Buddha. We've had a Sangha's method, 1,500 years old. We've had the Burmese method, not so old, but very good. We've now had Buddha Gosa's method, classic Theravada. But they're all interpreting the Buddhist core message. They, these are all Buddhist. They're all variations on the theme, but it all traces back to the Buddha's pith instructions on mindfulness of breathing. He taught it in 16 phases. And if you fall through all the 16 phases, you're an arhat when you finish. Mindfulness of breathing is a complete path with ethics, of course, with the context. Uh, but the first four out of 16 phases are for shamatha. The next 12 are vipassana. And you've, if you achieve the first four, then you've achieved shamatha. You've achieved the first jhana, or access to the first jhana. And he just gives four pith instructions, and that's it. Everything else is interpretation. So let's see what he said. And it's really, really simple. And this is echoed in the Mahayana teachings, and the Prajnaparamita. Virgin wisdom is the same teaching. But couched within the context of the Bodhisattva way of life, bodhicitta, and so forth. And so here it is, the Buddha giving just the straight instruction that he gave. He taught this more than any other method of meditation in all of the 45 years that he taught. Mindfulness reading more commonly than anything else. And so, what did he say? And he said, breathing in long, one knows I breathe in long. Breathing out long, one knows I breathe out long. That's the first one, that's it. You're noting, you're noting the relative duration of each in-breath, out-breath, and it's relative. But relatively, that was kind of longish. Relatively, that was kind of shortish. We see the next one is, breathing in short, one knows I breathe in short, breathing out short, one knows I breathe out short. And so what he's talking about, that's it. And everything else is interpretation. That's what he said. And he said it countless times, over 45 years. That's a long time. And so what he's talking about is simply maintaining a flow of cognizance, very primal, very primal. That is, as you're breathing out long, you'll know that it's a long breath before you think it's a long breath. When it's a short breath, you'll know that it's short before you think, oh, it's short. You'll know it before you conceptually identify it as such. Just like when you, if somebody says, I'm just about to put something, if you trust them, I'm about to put something that's either salty or sweet in your mouth. Close your eyes and see how long it takes you to recognize whether it's chocolate or a <coughs> bit of salt or a potato chip. How long does it take you? Is it salty or is it sweet? Before you can think, you already know. You, a baby can know before ever knowing the word salty or sweet. Before you have the language, you already know, but do not have words for it. We're going to that level of cognizance. It's a deeper flow. Conceptualization is baggage. It's an afterthought. It's excessive, not needed. What he's saying then, and of course it's not smooth, sometimes you have a long breath, sometimes short, 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 long, 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 short, long, 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 short. The system is balancing itself out. It's balancing itself out. If you let it, you don't try to go into manual override and try to outsmart your body, telling your body how it should breathe. It's a really bad idea, a bit arrogant actually. And so allowing the whole system of your nervous system, let's use Western terminology, to balance itself out by way of the breathing. But what you're recognizing then, from long, short, 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 long, long, short, 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 long, long, short, 
And then eventually, it settles, it settles. What you're attending to is the rhythm, the rhythm of the respiration. And that's it, just the rhythm. So you may note the rhythm by sensing or attending to the fluctuations throughout the entire body. You'll pick up the rhythm that way. The rise and fall of that, you'll pick up the rhythm. Attending to sensations here, you pick up the rhythm. Or that we'll do one more method after the break, and we'll still pick up rhythm. But they're each very distinct, different practices, different interpretations. And what we'll end on, sneak preview, Dzogchen approach to mindfulness of breathing. And it really is Dzogchen. And it's really mindfulness of breathing. And it is an interpretation of this. So that's two out of four. That's what's coming next. One trains thus, I shall breathe in, experiencing the whole body. I shall breathe out, experiencing the whole body. Interpreted. That's what he said. Whole body, what's that? Whole body. Buddha Gosa says, whole body, whole body of the breath. You're going for stability now. You're going for continuity. The whole course of inhalation, you're there for the whole ride. You didn't fall off. You didn't get distracted. You didn't forget. The whole ride. And then the whole ride. And then continuously, the whole ride, like a swing. You're always on the swing. Full engagement. The whole body of each cycle. Continuous flow. Flow, flow. The psychological term. This is flow. Attending to the whole body of the breath. That's one way of interpreting it. It's a good interpretation. Asanga says, well, I interpret it a little bit differently. Attend to the whole body. The Buddha meant what he said, and that is attend to the, to the sensations of the breath throughout the whole body. Your whole body's breathing. He speaks of subtle and coarse. You're breathing through your pores. You're breathing through your pores. What was it? I just looked it up. It's a lot of them. I can, I can't, I've forgotten the number. It's a lot of them. But you're actually breathing through your pores. I thought maybe that was a Buddhist stick, but then I checked it up. In fact, no, you're breathing through your pores. That's modern physiology, too. If you clog all the pores, your body is going to suffocate in a way. And so, so you are breathing through your pores as well, right? And so that Asanga is picking this up 1,500 years ago. The subtle breath is through your pores. You're attending to the whole body. You're attending to the whole body breathing on a coarse level, fluctuations like your belly going up and down, subtle fluctuations in your thighs and your arms and so forth, and then the subtlest perturbations, breathing through your pores. So two interpretations, they're both good. And then he says, I shall breathe in calming the composite of the body. I shall breathe out calming the composite of the body. Thus one trains. And he just gave the most pithiest description of achieving shamatha. The composite of the body, that's the best translation I can come up with. The whole system. But of course, the body and mind are not independent. They never have been. They're not independent. As soon as you're dead, you don't have a human body, and so it's not yours at all. Then you have a subtle continuum that carries on, but it's not human. It's not human. It wasn't human before you conceived, and it's not human afterwards. So it's not Cartesian dualism, and it's not materialistic monism. It's something that's actually true. <laughs> there is a right answer. You know, there has to be a right answer, right? Something has to be true, and I'm just saying... Nobody has to believe me, but this is it. And the Buddha discovered it. And it was known long before him, too. That what carries on is not a human soul. You didn't come in with a human soul. Human souls, human mind, human personality, arise at independence by the human brain. Damage human brain, you can be less human. A person is comatose, vegetative, and so forth, or profoundly mm, mentally impaired, is less human 
a sentient being to be cherished like any other sentient being, but it's less human, right? If you're severely demented, like brain damage or what have you, then that's cause, not because your subtle continuum is any worse, it's just that it's not heavily constrained by a damaged brain, Alzheimer's, senile dementia, and so forth. But in this practice, you calm the whole system. You have a mind that is arising independent upon the brain, but does not emerge even from the brain, which is a categorical error. Frankly, silly to think that consciousness. I mean, Thomas Huxley, the originator of scientific materialism, he was the, the grandpa of scientific materialism. He said the notion that by by stimulation of the brain, that consciousness pump comes up. This is about as sensible as thinking you could rub a lamp and have a genie pop out. And he was a materialist. You're right. You're right, Mr. Huxley. On that, we agree. I don't believe in magic. And I don't believe that consciousness emerged from chemicals, because that's magical chemistry. And I've studied physics. If you believe that, you believe in magical physics. The electrons, protons, atoms give rise to consciousness? Tell me which branch of physics allows for that. Give me a break. It's silly. Space-time doesn't emerge from anything other than space-time. Matter energy doesn't emerge from anything other than mass energy. And consciousness doesn't emerge from anything other than consciousness. We flatten the universe by thinking it's only the material. It's just flat. It's like, it's like living as a flat earther or a two-dimensional thing. That, that novel that was written about people living in two dimensions. And so there it is. I mean, true or false? I mean, there it is true. Believe it or not, it's your business. But the evidence is overwhelming. This is not an article of faith for me. The evidence is overwhelming. I have spent 25, 30 years looking at the competition. <laughs> We're finished. <laughs> it's really that easy. <laughs> if you look at the evidence, the evidence is overwhelming. And so this is what he's saying. You've calmed the whole system. And you calm the whole system, and we'll get to this very shortly, so much so that your human mind dissolves. The human mind dissolves, not irreversibly. It does when you die. You'll never get that human mind again. And it doesn't go into the bardo. You've lost it forever. It will become a memory and then not that. And for other people, they say, oh no, he lives on in our memory. Bollocks! People don't live on in your memory. Your memory lives in your memory. They're not people in there. And it's only sooner or later you're going to forget him. You'll die, you'll forget him then. Or I, I knew a bunch of kids when I was in junior high school and I can't remember them anymore. People don't live in your memory. People live where they are. That's it. When you're dead, you're dead. But something carries on, and in some very deep way, it's you, but a continuous flow. But when you've calmed the composite of the body, you've calmed the composite of the mind, because the human mind is arising independent upon the human body. No human body, no human mind. No human brain, no human mind. No human brain, no human. So when the brain is dead, you're not a human anymore. But this is a way without damage. There's no brain damage here. There's no, there's no downside, collateral damage, by going into deep samadhi and watching, your, watching yourself lose your mind <laughs> from radiant clarity that is maintaining clear, dis discerning cognizance without the human mind being involved. It's deeper than that. You can die lucidly. You can fall asleep lucidly. Evidence is very strong. You can dream lucidly. Dream lucidly. The evidence is unequivocal. You can be in deep dream and sleep lucidly. The evidence is very strong. And you can die lucidly. And that would be great, very, very advantageous. To go through the portals of death with your eyes wide open. 
You won't bring your human mind with you, but you can bring a clearly discerning, lucid, luminous awareness and keep your eyes open the whole way and get to the dead zone and know what it's like to be dead. Then you've read the novel of your life to the last page. But if you pass out when you're dying, you go non-lucid, then you're reading, hopefully you've had a thrilling life, a meaningful life, an interesting life, and you come into the last page and <laughs> you've missed the last page. I mean, that was the last page. How, and how did you die? I don't know, I wasn't there. <laughs> That's pathetic, frankly. Really. So live lucidly, dream lucidly, be deep asleep lucidly, die lucidly. This is, what, this is what Henry David Thoreau was saying, you know, give it to me straight. But when I die, I want to know what happened. Boy, that, he resonated with me. He was my gospel. Walden, praise the Lord, hallelujah. So I breathe out, calming the composite of the body. The breath becomes so subtle. But here's how it turns out. Spoiler alert. And that is, as you're settling, settling the respiration in its natural rhythm. It'll be long, short, short, long, 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 short, short, and then after a while, in its own way, don't try to go manual override any more than you practice Zen by getting into Zen book with the answer of the koans and reading those. You know, just, why don't you just cut to the chase. Give me the right answers and I'll tell you. Roshi, it's Mu. <laughs> Whatever, or <laughs> You just don't get to be a Roshi that way. And you don't get to settle your respiration in its natural state by mimicking it. Okay, breathe really shallow. Okay. Are we there yet? You have to let it, it has to be. It is natural pranayama. It's the wisdom of the body, which is the wisdom of your own pristine awareness. Balancing the respiration until all the kinks are worked out and the blockages are worked out. And you go from long, short, short, long, and then you go to short, 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 short. In my experience, and I've asked a number of my students that I've it's anecdotal. It's not a scientific conclusion. It's anecdotal. But I have my experience. I've listened to others. What I can say for myself, and this happened so many times now, it's just well, it's true for me, is when really settling there, then there's a point which the kinks are worked out. It's no longer long, short, and so forth. It goes short, 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 short. And I noticed this some years back. And I got <laughs> curious that it's now not getting any shorter. That is the amplitude, no, the, the frequency, the frequency is stabilized. And I checked it, and it was 15 cycles, 14, 16, 14, 15, 15, 15, 16. It was right there at 15 cycles per minute. And it was just, it would just go there and stay there. But that was interesting, right? 15 cycles. It's short, it's two seconds in, two seconds out. And it's, it is very sinusoidal. It's not three seconds and one second, it's two seconds, two seconds. Very sinusoidal it's very shallow and then I did it then I remembered something and in Vajrayana Buddhism it said that in the 24-hour period you have 21,600 breaths that's that's how many times you breathe in 24-hour period do the arithmetic 15 cycles per minute and then I thought that I noticed that when I'd gone to I'm, I'm not an accomplished yogi I'm just an old yogi <laughs> still an amateur but quite content, you know, at least I'm going in the right direction. That's all that really matters. I'm slow as a turtle. But at least I think I'm, I know, I know I'm actually very confident going in the right direction. That I noticed that um, 
It was very smooth there, very sinusoidal. And it really felt like, and feels like, the body's going to sleep. And it feels like the mind is going to sleep. But I'm not going to sleep. The awareness is clear, discerning, bright, sharp, clear, stable, calm, still. But the mind's going to sleep, and the body's clearly going to sleep. And it really felt like the breathing was just like the breathing of a, of a sleeping person. And so then I did the Google search. I said, OK, so much research on sleeping. Is there any standard pattern of breathing when people, a person is in stage four non-REM sleep, deep sleep, 15 cycles? That's what I saw. And that's a Google search, so maybe I just got wrong information. But there it is. And then what happens? What happens then? So it, it doesn't get shorter. You don't, it doesn't go to 20 cycles per minute, or et cetera. No, it, just, it just keeps on gravitating right back to 15, uh, 21,600. But what does happen is the frequency, in my experience, it's just anecdotal. Maybe I'm just an oddball and other people is totally different. Could be. Um, but it stays that, but then the, the frequency stays the same, but the amplitude diminishes. Because as the calmer the mind comes, the less agitation, the less perturbation, the less conceptualization, just calmer and calmer. Shamata means calm. The calmer the mind, the less air your body needs. And it will need less and less and less. And as it does, the sensations, it's just a tiny bit of air passing in and out. And it's enough. You're not trying to breathe shallowly. That's a bad idea. Let the body have get what it needs. That they get so subtle that the sensations can be subtler than your awareness. And then you feel you're not breathing at all. And Buddhaghosa cites, cites a, the conversation between a student and his teacher. The teacher said, go back just 10 more closely. You're still breathing. The whole system calls you to achieve shamatha. And so this is the feedback nature. And that is when you're really going subtle. And then something comes up. An emotion comes up. A memory comes up. Conceptualization comes up. Then, then your, your brain needs more, more air. And you breathe more deeply again. And it, and, but then when you call, then it goes subtle. So it's a feedback loop. If you get really subtle but you can't follow it, then it'll get gro gross again. and come. It's like two people walking along, one taking another by the hand. But then the other one goes faster, and the one that's left behind, then come, you come back and pick him up again and take him by the hand. And if you lose him, then he'll come back and pick you up again. Your breath is so friendly. It comes back and picks you up. <laughs> if you get lost in the wilderness. And so that's it. And so the feedback nature is unique. There's no other practice like this. And you don't have to pay anything for it. It's amazing. You know, they have feed, a person who had developed, one of the CEO of one company that developed a, uh, a little EG cap you put on. I was teaching at MIT, giving a lecture there or something. And she really wanted me to try. She, I'll give you one for free, she said. I said, OK, I'll take it. A little kind of thing you put on. And it got little sensors here to detect your level of attention. And if you stray, it goes beep, beep, beep. And you don't stray, it doesn't go beep, beep, beep. And she really wanted me to try it. And I did. Found it completely useless. <laughs> <laughs> and I wrote her, I said, this had, you know, the little beep, beep had no relationship at all to my experience. I found it completely useless. And she says, oh, that's because you're, you're so advanced. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe, whatever. <laughs> but it cost you a good $300 for that little feedback mechanism. I asked a friend of mine who's right here in Davis, really a, an outstanding neuroscientist. He was the head of the whole Shamat project for scientific study. And I asked him, Cliff Saren, 
Cliff, is the technology good enough yet? Because he's an expert on EEG. This is his baby. Is the technology good enough to give you accurate feedback about the level of your tension? I said, not yet. Maybe one day, could be. In which case, it might be helpful. But right now, the jury's out. Okay, in terms of mindfulness and introspection, I could read this, but you can too. But I wanted you to see what the Buddha said, because there's a very loud voice in, in the press and the media and so forth, and psychology and so forth. Mindfulness, mindfulness, mindfulness. It's now we're in the mindfulness phase. And it's really wonderful. It's much better to be mindful than mindless. And John Kevison's done a great service, and many, many other people. So it's great service. But they've defined mindfulness in a way that it simply never has been Buddhist, and it's not Buddhist, and they're not Buddhist, and so they can't tell the Buddhists what the Buddhist definition of mindfulness is when they're not even Buddhists themselves. And the modern MBSR psychological definition of mindfulness as moment-to-moment non-judgmental awareness of whatever comes up is very useful, and it's a perfectly accurate definition of mindfulness according to modern psychology and MBSR. It's perfectly accurate. No criticism. It's not wrong even a tiny bit. It's 100% accurate. It's just not the Buddhist definition and never has been. So MBSR and all the mindfulness movement doesn't get more credibility by trying to appropriate Buddhism and say this is the Buddhist definition. It's not. We have one. Thank you very much. Keep yours. It's good for you. But this is the definition that's been around for 2,500 years, and it's a Buddhist definition, and it's about bearing in mind. If you can see what he says, it's about recollection. But it's bearing in mind, and it turns out among European languages, English is the best language, has the best term, and it's exactly correct to translate sati, the Pali term that we translate as mindful. It's exactly correct. I, you know, I used to be fluent in German, and I know people who speak French and German and, and Italian and Spanish and Portuguese. They don't have a word that corresponds closely to the Buddhist. But English mindfulness does. But hardly anybody knows that in English. Because they think mindfulness is kind of like, I'm, I'm being aware. That's not what it means. Mindfulness is a noun that comes from the adjective mindful, and mindfulness is an adjective that comes from the verb to mind. As in children, mind your manners. We have guests coming over tonight. You know it how to be courteous. When they come, I want you to really mind your manners. That does not mean when the guests come, maintain moment-to-moment non-judgmental awareness of the guests. <laughs> means remember what we taught you. We want to be young ladies and gentlemen, be courteous, and you stand up when the guests come up, and you greet them, and you say something welcome, but be, mind your manners. You step onto an, an English bus, and it says, mind your head. And in England, they use, mind your step. And we also say, ladies and gentlemen, mind what I say. And it not, does not mean just hang out there moment to moment. It means bear in mind and apply it to the present circumstance. And that's exactly what sati means, and it's exactly what to, the verb to mind means. And therefore, that's exactly what the word mindfulness means, and that's English. And it just turns out it's a perfect match. And not for any other European language I know. So it's pretty cool. But hardly anybody knows the word meaning, meaning of the word mindfulness in English, because they just think it means being aware. And so there it is. So credit where credit is due, the whole mindfulness movement has helped hundreds of thousands of people. It's made its way into medical schools and universities and government and so forth. It's wonderful. There's just no reason for them to call it Buddhist, because it's not. And they say it's secular, so good, be secular. But this is the Buddhist definition. It always has been. And there's really, and I've checked, 
Japanese, Chinese, t t Mongolian, Tibetan, Sanskrit, Pali. These are all languages that have em embraced Buddhism. The term for, for sati, every single language has the connotation of recollection. None of them have a connotation of just be moment to moment aware without judgment. And not in Zen or Theravada or any school of Buddhism is that the correct definition. That doesn't mean correct, their definition is bad or that it's worse. It just means it's not Buddhist. So then this is Buddhist. And that's it. And it's no big deal. But this has been proven to be useful for 2,500 years, and the other were for 50 years, and maybe it will have another 2,000 years of benefit. Who knows? But this is the old medicine. And this is the meaning of mindfulness in Buddhism. And you can read it. I won't elaborate. But from Nagasena, you see particularly, the quote from Nagasena, I won't, I won't go through it. Time is short, and time is precious. But he nails it. He's an arhat. He speaks with tremendous authority for the whole Theravada tradition. He's an arhat in dialogue with a king. The king said, what does mindfulness mean? He gives this definition. It's an interpretation, a variation on what the Buddha said. And then a Sangha says something similar, and Shantideva said something similar with respect to introspection. You can read it. It's perfectly clear. But do note from Nagasena, he speaks with the authority comparable to that of a Buddha, and he said, mindfulness is discerning. It's not judgmental, but it is discerning. And often when people say judgmental, they throw out the baby with the bathwater. They throw out judgmental and they throw out discernment, and then they come up with these new age, ooey gooey, cotton candy statements like, I have to embrace all of me, including my egotism and my arrogance and my racism, because it's part of me and I have to embrace all of me. And, uh. <laughs> so he's saying, be discerning. Discerning as you are with your diet, for heaven's sakes. You go to a cafeteria, you don't practice non judgmental mind awareness. Say, this is unhealthy, I'm allergic to this, this is rotten, that's healthy. I'll, you take the healthy, you avoid the, rot, the rotten and the allergic, the allergy. It's just being intelligent, but it'll make you sick. But if you embrace and you gobble up the toxins of your mind, thinking, oh, they're mine, what can I do? I have to be non-judgmental. That's far stupider than eating food to which you're severely allergic. Because these toxins of the mind, they'll really poison you. They'll kill you. And so what he's saying is, no, there's no word for judgmental here. It's being discerning, recognizing which tendencies above all in the mind are wholesome, which are unwholesome, which beneficial, which unbeneficial. See how they flow, what follows from the course. If arrogance comes up and I express it, how does that turn out? If I'm feeling really hateful and contemptuous and express it, how does that turn out? To my own and others' well-being? So Paul Ekman, who's a dear friend of mine, outstanding scientist, secular and very ethical, he said, if we are monitoring, and he's speaking especially of emotions, recognizing some emotions may be very, very detrimental if expressed, and others can be very beneficial expressed. He said, to develop the intelligence to monitor the emotions that come up and to discern which ones are to be expressed, how to be expressed, when to be expressed. That's emotional intelligence. And if you lack it, and you just let everything come up, come out, whatever comes up, you say, well, I have to, I have to express my emotions, whatever they are, you'll experience a lot of regrettable episodes. <laughs> and I always get a chuckle. But it's so clean, non-moralistic, and just true, that if we express every emotion, let alone every desire that comes up, with no censorship, with no discernment, no intelligence, no choice, I choose to express this at this time, and I choose to follow this desire at this time. If there's no such intelligence, 
Now just be ready for one unfortunate episode after that that could have been avoided. So that's what Nagasena is saying. And this is not at all incompatible with what, with her, what I heard John Kabat-Zinn say, the father of all of this. He never said not judgmental as mental afflictions, virtuous states, what's the difference, tomatoes, tomatoes, let's be non-judgmental. He never said that. That's idiotic, frankly. But you know what he said. Don't just slap I like and I like and I don't like on everything. I'm, well, great, excellent, outstanding. So you can read the definitions, and then why I translate this sambhajanya, translated various ways, all of them I found unsatisfying. Introspection's the closest, as inspecting intro. But the difference between, and here we'll stop, the difference between Descartes' view of introspection is he's inspecting intro only unto the mind. William James, introspection is the primary way we should investigate the mind by looking at it. As Galileo looked at the stars, planets, and so forth, that's the way to make discoveries, not by not looking at it. And so the Cartesian introspection, William Jamesian introspection, is monitoring the mind. <coughs> Buddhism as well, but Buddhism is a bit fuller. Buddhism, by the way, is not monistic. It's not like everything boils down to consciousness, and that's it. Everything boils down to matter. Give me a break. It's not monistic. It's not dualistic. Buddhism, you just want to know, is pluralistic. It's saying reality is so large, it won't fit into one or two boxes, which is incredibly pompous. Because the category of matter and energy is something that we have created. We did not discover it. And now that we have dark matter, dark energy, we just expanded the definition. We're still calling it matter and energy, about which we know nothing at all. But we still call it matter. So in other words, matter and energy, these are defined by human beings. And they keep on getting redefined, as they should. But to think the whole reality fits into constructs that we made is wildly and ludicrously anthropocentric. The whole reality will fit into human-made boxes. That's crazy. And Buddhism said, no, no, pluralistic. Leave the box open. It's a wide open box, and there are many, many boxes. But all of them you made. We made all the boxes. Reality doesn't box itself. It doesn't box itself. Reality doesn't draw its own borders. We do our benefit and to our peril. So in Buddhism, this final note, we'll move on, is introspection is monitoring, is always reflexive, and it's monitoring. Right now, I know my right hand is in motion, and it's my hand, and so I'm reflexively aware, because it's my hand, a movement of my hand, and that's introspection. I'm specking intro onto my posture, movement of my hand. I'm specking intro speaking. This is me speaking. I need to be monitoring my speech to see that it's appropriate, it's helpful, not too fast, not too slow, and so forth, that's introspecting, inspecting intro onto one's own speech, one's own behavior, one's own mind. Body, speech, and mind, reflexive awareness that is discerning, intelligent, loving, and wanting to be helpful. I like to engage with my body in ways that are of harm to no one as much as I can and beneficial. I like to use my speech in ways that are beneficial and not harmful. I like my mind to be and introspection's job is I'll help out. Take a break. And I'll see you at 10 minutes past the hour, and we'll go right back in.